Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I'm 30 years old at, at that time, and it's something I've literally worked my entire life for. 
It's Phil Parsons picking up his very first Winston Cup win ever. After what I'd been through probably the previous five years, I'm not sure that that win at Charlotte wasn't the most special of my career, honestly. Phil Parsons takes a look at the checkered flag and will win the Champion Spark Plug 300. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. Now, Steve, I don't know if you pay attention to this kind of thing, but Danny B talks over on YouTube. He's a one of the big, big, big YouTube guys, NASCAR YouTube guys. And on Twitter the other day, he tweeted out that Dell Earnhardt Jr.'s trophy for winning the 1999 Winston Cup scene, <laughs> Bush Series Most Popular Driver Award, had sold on eBay for $2,100. That's a pretty good clip there. That's a nice yeah. little payday yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> well, according to Danny B Talks, the bidding evidently went from $800 to the final bid in the last 18 minutes of the auction. So a few people, Steve, out there really wanted this thing. So it went to 2,100 from 800 in just 18 minutes. Is in that right? Eight, in the final 18 minutes. 18 because minutes. Okay. that's kind of a common tactic over on eBay. People kind of watch it, and they kind of lay in wait for the final few minutes, and then they try to get a bid in at the final moment. To Well, I don't know eBay, but I understand what auctions are all about, so uh, that's understandable. I can only assume that the furious bidding took place only – after collectors out there discovered that I had been the one who actually presented Dale Jr. that trophy at the awards banquet in Beverly Hills. Well, I wouldn't assume that. (laughs) (laughs) What are you saying, Steve? (laughs) Now, our friend Chris Perry on Twitter did a little digging, and he discovered that the seller of this trophy said that he had been told that it was a crew member trophy. Which I don't know. I, that didn't sound quite right to me because we only had the one trophy made, didn't we? If we should come seeing, we didn't approve a, a crew member trophy as far as I know, especially for the most popular driver. I sent Dell Jr. a message to see if he remembered the trophy, whether it was the original trophy or maybe he'd given it away or maybe if it was even stolen or, hey, he might not even like me and he might have <laughs> pitched it in the trash at the banquet. Somebody picked it up or whatever. <laughs> As glorious as it must have been for Dale to receive that trophy from me and from Winston Cup scene, as as big a deal as that must have been to him, if he was going to make duplicate trophies to give to his crew, let's be honest, I would assume that he would have given them a duplicate of the championship trophy. That's what I would assume. So I don't know where this trophy came from. i got to imagine it's legitimate in some shape, form, or fashion, but how it came to be, I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to find out. Steve, also, on this episode, I think that listeners are going to notice another pretty big difference in this week's episode. We have been able to work with both MRN and PRN to get highlights from the races that we discuss here on the podcast, and because we're beginning to build up a nice little backlog of interviews ourselves. If we discuss something that maybe we've touched on in a previous conversation, we're going to go back and dig in the archive and use that too. So 
Uh, we're stepping up our game a little bit, Steve. Absolutely. This is good stuff. I've heard these clips, and they really, really add to what we're talking about. So on the MRN side, Chris Schwartz, Ryan Horn, and Julian Council have been instrumental in making those clips happen, while Doug Rice and Kent Bernhardt have been our go-to guys at PRN. So all those fellas, that's big, and I really – truly thank them for the help that they've been at the very beginning of this deal with them. This is going to be some good stuff. And I thank those guys as well. You and I have talked about this. I just believe that the highlights are going to add a little more oomph to the show maybe, and hopefully make it sound a little more professional. So (laughs) that wouldn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll just see what happens, man. We talked a little bit before we started recording and I'm actually kind of Looking forward to hearing this episode myself to see how it turns out. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Steve, this week, we are going to share the second and final installment of our interview with Phil Parsons. And when you look at everything that Phil went through, in 1988, he won his first Winston Cup race at Talladega. And, of course, that put him at the top of the heap in Winston Cup. He was an up-and-coming driver. But then, Steve... A year and a half later, he is basically unceremoniously dumped by Morgan McClure Motorsports just three races into the 1990 season. And, Steve, there were rumors that he had poor vision, and he said in no uncertain terms that basically derailed his career. Well, as fate would have it, I was right in the middle of that situation uh, talking about Phil and telling his story, and I understood exactly where he was coming from when he talked about that poor vision incident when there was no poor vision. But I'll get into that a little bit later on. Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the June 2nd, 1994 issue of Winston Cup Scene. And that issue featured coverage of the Winston Cup Bush Series combination weekend at Charlotte. And that was a big weekend for both Jeff Gordon and Phil Parsons. Jeff scored the first official points win of his Winston Cup career in the Coca-Cola 600, while Phil was able to post the win in the Bush Series race the day before. So after getting released by Morgan McClure, after all those rumors, how gratifying must it have been for Phil to win that race and not only win that race, but do it in front of everybody at Charlotte? No Oh, it had to be very, very gratifying because in the third race of the year, which was at Richmond that year, he's dumped by Morgan McClure and uh, thought to have, like I said earlier, poor vision. But that story continued. But then Phil wins at Charlotte. Now, you can just imagine how good that's got to make a guy feel to win a race after he's dumped and after he's really thought to be physically impaired. Great. This issue also featured coverage of John Andretti's double-double in the Indianapolis 500 and the Coca-Cola 600 for the first time. That He was the first person yeah, to do that. That's right. There are also features in this issue about Bud Moore's service on D-Day during World War II and also Jeff Purvis flying with the Navy's Blue Angels flight demonstration team. Oh, I know those flight teams rate with you. I can tell you that. (laughs) Man, I'm telling you what's the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Patrick Merrill, Steve Shanahan, Craig Mahosky, Alex DeLong, 
and Jason Myers, but not that Jason Myers, not the Jason Myers who races at the Madhouse, Bowman Gray Stadium <laughs> in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So Patrick, Steve, Craig, Alex, Jason, thank you. I say it every week, but without the support that we receive on Patreon and without the support that we receive on PayPal, this episode would not be possible. We would not be able to do what we're doing, Steve. And yeah. listen, we're only getting started. We oh, are yeah. only getting started. So, Steve, we got some big plans. And as soon as that happens, I think people are going to see how this is all going to come to fruition. And I think they're going to enjoy it very much. So, listeners, if you can, please support us on Patreon and support us on PayPal. If you can do Patreon, that address is patreon.com slash the same vault podcast or over on PayPal. If you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. There in the mid 1980s, you were plugging along in cup and you were doing okay. But then in 1988, it seemed like somebody turned on a light switch, and you're running pretty doggone good all of a sudden. What was the difference that year in particular? I think I just I didn't have a lot of experience probably when I when I went to the Cup Series. I, you know, I was I was very competitive in the Bush Series, and I was, uh, and it seemed like that for the most part, I was I was the only young guy that really could run with the cup guys when they came to run the, the on the speedways you know even even though I was pretty new at it and uh, you know I I was probably the the best of the regulars on those type of racetracks the Charlottes and the Rockinghams and the Darlingtons but I don't I don't know that that means I was ready for the cup series necessarily and I ran five races in 83 and then then we ran a limited schedule from that point on I just, I think a lot of things combined, the fact that, you know, or I was learning more, I think probably around, you know, 85, I, I think I started kind of figuring it out, even though 84 was my rookie year and had some good finishes, had some good top tens and stuff in 84. But I think 85 is when I kind of started figuring it out and our stuff, uh, you know, the, the equipment, we got better. And 87, I was able to run the full season. 87, we were actually going to share one car instead of both Benny and I running 16 races or whatever the case may be we were going to share one car and then in some of the races we would run two cars like the Daytona 500 some of the bigger races we would run two well then Tim Richmond got sick and Rick Hendrick called Benny to to drive for Hendrick okay. so so yeah. Benny went to do yeah. that so that opened up the 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 car full time for me in 1987. So I was able to run all the racetracks in 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 our good good equipment. So again, every year we got better. You know, 84 we were better than 83. 85 we were better than 84. 86 we were better than 87. You know, we got you know we had some pretty good races, some pretty competitive races. And then we you know they came Oldsmobile came out with a new car in 1988, the Cutlass Supreme, uh, new body style, and I think it was it was better. And for whatever reason, I think you know that body style was better, and and I was getting I was gaining on it, and and, and we just started running well. Nineteen eighty eight, you go into the Daytona five hundred, and you finish third. Mm -hmm. And if it hadn't been for those pesky Allisons up front, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what were your expectations going into Talladega? 
because of how well you had run at Daytona in particular, what were your expectations going into Talladega that spring? Well, they were really high, but we even even before I we always were competitive at Daytona Talladega. I mean, those were the races that I would circle at the beginning of the year because I knew I knew we could be competitive there. I was I was a pretty good drafter. I was you know I was able to do a a pretty competent job there. So I knew that our stuff was fast, and I knew we would have a great a great chance. And in the practice leading up to the race at Talladega, I mean. Everybody in the garage knew that our car was really good. We ended up qualifying third, but I remember one of our guys, I don't remember who it was, he drove, drove at that time you would drive the car to the gas pumps from the garage area, drive it back if you, know, if you weren't going to go out to practice. Somebody, one of our guys drove the car to the gas pumps and two or three people lined up behind him because they wanted a draft with us in practice. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just going to the gas pumps. But we knew it was, it was really good. I remember Kyle Petty and I in practice on Saturday got together and, 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 and were really, really good. You know, passed some really good cars and, and were able to drive away from some cars. So uh, we knew, I, I knew that we would have a great, a great chance, but who, who knows how things will play out, you know. White flag as Phil Parsons flashes into turn number one. Allison has moved up to second. Allison has the second spot. Now down on the bottom of the racetrack, Ken Schrader. He's up alongside Jeff Bodine. Bodine won't let him go by quite as easily. The battle continues for third. Schrader moves up alongside Bodine. Gets a bit sideways here on the back straightaway, but does a great job of hanging on to it. As they move down the back chute, Bobby Allison swings low, but Parsons sees him, goes alongside. Now Parsons high. Parsons, your leader. Allison is second. Bodine third, then Labonte. Well, if the incentive counts for anything, Bobby Allison's got it. A million bucks still in his potentially in his pocket. If he can win this race, he dips to the bottom of the racetrack. Bodine comes right with him. Now Allison drifts up high. Parsons leads him off turn four for the final time. Looking for his first win after 110 Winston Cup races. Phil Parsons holding off the challenge of Bobby Allison. Phil Parsons wins the Winston 500. Allison second. Jeff Bodine is third. Further back, a host of cars come across the line, two and three wide. But it's Phil Parsons picking up his very first Winston Cup win ever after 100 and 10 starts and again Talladega Alabama smiles on a first time winner race day what do you remember about the race well we uh obviously the car was really fast we got the lead caution came out we'd probably run about I don't know 15 or 20 laps I'm guessing maybe have maybe not halfway to a fuel stop we were leading we end up staying out and 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 to retain the lead and thing goes green and I'm gonna have to make a green flag pit stop so I make a green flag pit stop and what I and I didn't know this at the time and I think it was a long time before I realized this as well is Leo gambled Leo was a crew chief Leo gambled and said let's just put one can of gas in so we'd minimize the time on pit road because you know we weren't we that was the first year of restrictor plates in 88 but we're still probably racing at 200 miles an hour thereabouts uh, let's just put one can of gas in so we don't spend as much time on pit road and see if we can get back out in front of the leader to try to, you know, at least stay there. Again, then we can run 20 more laps, and they're going to have to pit in 20, la- you know, 20 laps anyway. So so we did that, and we're out, and we came out in front of the leaders, but the draft caught me, and I'm, I'm racing. Kenny Schrader was leading the race at the time, and Kenny was trying to, trying to basically trying to lap me. Well, he got loose and spun out trying to lap me, and that, that – number one, that got me my lap back because I was able to, you know, you didn't have any free pass back then. You had to be in front of the leader when the caution came out and beat him back to the line uh, in order to get 
to you know to get your lap back. So I was able to do that. Kenny spun out, and I was able to get back to the start finish line to get back on the lead lap. So we talked to Andy Petrie for the show a mm-hmm. um, year or so ago, and let's just say that he said that that car was very very special. Mm-hmm. He he wouldn't confirm anything in particular that was special. He just kind of basically grinned and winked about it. So you go in 1988, and you and Phil win at Talladega. Um, <laughs> as soon as I say that, you break into this yeah. grin. There's got to be a story. So no, what it- not really. I mean, we we had a really, really good team back then. And we look back on it, we probably should have done even more. Yeah. We, we should have won Charlotte. I believe we had a pretty good car, a winning car there that year and, and ended up getting a little bit of a crash. But um, – we finished third in the Daytona 500, first race of '88, and then we uh, we go to Talladega and we learned a few things. And oh, we we had a really okay. really good car there. <laughs> and uh, okay, so hey, the statute of limitations has long <laughs> since passed. It's been 31 years. What'd you learn? Well, we, what'd you have on that car? <laughs> let's just say back then it was a lot more fun. <laughs> in a crew chief, you had a lot more latitude oh. on things, and you could, you know, that, that's where I really learned how. At that point, you had to learn how to play the game if you were going to be competitive. I, I, you know, okay, I, I was a new crew chief, but I, I noted, you know, you, you're racing against crew chiefs like Tim Brewer and Tony yeah. Glover and all these guys. You know, they yeah. they're pretty creative. You know, Larry McReynolds, those guys. Oh. So I had to learn how to be creative with them. Now, you can't dangle that carrot out there. You can't just leave it hanging. Well, there's just, it's not yeah. one thing. I mean, it's just yeah. the way we pushed things back then is, was so much different. They had rules, they had height rules, they had these right. rules, but it, it was not so much how, if you just went by the rule, you, you would just watch those guys drive around you and laugh. Oh, yeah, yeah. You had to yeah. learn how to use the, how they enforced them. You had to play to the enforcement. Okay. You know, all right. So it was, it was fun back then. There was a lot of creative things we worked on and, and that carried on through really up until the late 90s, even. Once and for all, what was going on with the car that day? Just fast. Ah. It was just fast. <laughs> it was worth a shot. You'll have to go back. You'll have to go back and talk to Andy then, I guess. <laughs> when you won at Bristol in what's now the Xfinity Series, you said it was the biggest win of your career. Then you go to Talladega, and you're standing in Victory Lane, and that's a place where your brother had stood, where Richard Petty had stood. Well, Benny actually never won Talladega. Did he not? Mm-hmm. That was one of the few race okay. tracks right. that he that he wasn't able to win at. Okay. I mean, there wasn't. I mean, Rockingham, which was his home track because he lived in Ellerby, ten yeah. miles away. Yeah. He never won at Rockingham. He never won at Martinsville, and he never won at Talladega. About most of the rest of the places he did. With that being said. What did it mean to you to be on the mountaintop? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I can't. I can't even describe it today. Over thirty years later, I mean, just just the the uh, you know euphoric. I mean, it was it was uh, something I'd work. I mean, at, I'm thirty years old at, at that time, and it's something I'd literally worked my entire life for. Literally worked my entire life for. And I and I was at the time I said, well, this just is just the start, you know. This is just the start, and, and there's going to be so many more of these. But this this one feels so good. It's the first one. 1989. Was Harry Gant considered an actual teammate of yours, or had Richard and Leo split up into two separate teams at that point? What was that dynamic? Hal Needham, who had owned the Skull team right. that entire time, had uh, decided to get out at the end of the '88 season. So. Um, 
U.S. Tobacco decided they wanted to keep going with Harry Gant. So the, the logical thing to do was to come over and, and join up with Richard and Leo, who would, who would essentially who would own the team by this, at this point. And we, again, in, in 88, uh, we, 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 ba- we basically ran, I either ran for Richard or for Leo in 1988. We sp- kind of split it up that way. Leo had his races and Richard had his races in 19, because uh, we had a shop in Denver but that, that all the cars were prepared in, but, but Leo and Richard both lived in Asheville and ran their business up there. Uh, and, and Leo had actually branched off and started another business, Precision Products Performance, to do all the racing stuff. Richard maintained the, uh, the, the other Precision Products business to do mostly industrial kind of work or whatever. So Leo, they decided to uh, start bring a second car into our team Leo built a shop up there adjacent to his Precision Products Performance Building in Asheville, and then and then to run Harry, and then I Richard still maintained the shop in Denver that I would race out of. So we were we were teammates in in a, in a, of a sort. Other than you know Leo's and Harry's cars were all in Asheville, and my cars and Richard's cars were all in Denver. Now, Andy at this time had become crew chief, and he went to Asheville with Leo, and uh, and then in, in, and then we we stayed in, in Denver in, in 1989. And Richard was essentially my crew chief, even though he spent most of his time in Asheville, you know, during the week. And then we would meet up and go to the races. At what point was the decision made that you would leave the team at the end of '89? We it was. You know, as as good as 1988 was, and again, I we we'd gotten better every year. Yeah. From the time we started in '83, we got better every year, better results, better finishes, top ten in points in '88. Won Talladega, finished third in the 500, third in the Firecracker 400, second at Wilkesboro. Really, you seemed like we we're on to something. Well, nothing went right in 1989. Nothing went right. Finished fifth in the Daytona 500. I said, okay, well, you know, it a great start. And then the rest of the year was just horrible. I wrecked a lot, and we just didn't have the speed. And I was trying to carry it on my shoulders, and 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 couldn't do it. Wrecked a lot, got involved in a lot of wrecks, and 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 I just did. I just felt like it was it was time to do something different. So uh, I decided towards the end, uh, maybe September, or whatever. That that if there was an opportunity to leave, then 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 I would leave. Did you have a sense that maybe the two teams were taken away from each other, or? Well, I, I had a sense that I felt like we we lost the, the Leo's part of it. Rich and Leo were such a great combination together, and and we lost Andy as well. And who Andy had had, had really come come along and was a terrific crew chief and really knowledgeable. Uh, so I, I felt like that really. I felt like I, you know, I felt like our team really paid the price for that in, in 1989. Phil, this is a tough question that I ask. And I, and I don't know any other way to put it other than to say what happened at Morgan McClure. Well, uh, I thought that was a, I thought it was going to be a great opportunity. We went to Daytona and we're really, really fast and got, got involved in a wreck. Uh, Rob Moroso ran into me and, and he and I and AJ wrecked or whatever then we went to, I think Richmond might have been next, 
and I reckon practice going out to uh, to try to make a mock qualifying run, reckon practice, and uh, and then we end up running the race, and then go to Rockingham and get involved in a wreck at Rockingham. I mean, just start out as bad as it could start out, and uh, and Larry McClure decided to make a change. Is there any way to put into words what your reaction was? I mean, that was three races. Mm-hmm. That's that's not a very good test case, in well, my opinion. Well, that, and that's what I thought. And and you know, we talked about winning Talladega and how euphoric that was, and that was you know the highlight of my life to that point or whatever. And thought it was just the beginning. Well, this this was the low point of my life. This was this was by far, you know, way. Uh, way harder than when I ran out of money and had to go see Humpy to to try to figure out a, a plan with my life and try to try to stay in racing. This was uh, this was uh, as as indescribably uh, happy I was to win Talladega. This was just the opposite, indescribably, indescribably distraught over that. You and I talked very briefly before we started recording, but uh, I did do a story talked to you and Marsha uh, for a story and scene uh, before I started working there full-time uh, about the rumors that were going on concerning your eyesight. You had had a cataract mm-hmm. surgery on your right? Left eye. Left eye mm-hmm. after the 89 season. Mm-hmm. How did those rumors get started? I don't know, honestly. I, I don't know. Uh, there, were, there was talk that you there was something going on with your eyesight. Yeah. Otherwise, and I, I mean, I had cataracts, yeah, I, yeah, without a doubt, yeah. but it certainly didn't affect me. I still had 2015 vision, yeah, you know, and I didn't lose any peripheral vision or whatever. Uh, but I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know where. I didn't at the time. I wondered if if if, if Larry McClure, because uh, he was he was well aware. It. I told him. I don't know if he was uh, I, at the time. I said, well, maybe he was trying to use that to justify getting rid of me and I don't I don't have confirmation that that ever happened I don't know that he did uh, I always wondered if that was the case I probably you know haven't spoken to him very much since since 1989 uh, or 1990 I should say but uh, I don't know I honestly don't know and there was no truth to it other than yeah. it certainly was the fact that I had 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 cataract surgery which the eye doctor was kind of surprised at, at my age that I had a cataract but that's typically obviously somebody older so well 30 years later you're not wearing coke bottle glasses I don't, I don't wear contacts wow okay yeah did you and marcia have a sense that maybe that had damaged your career oh there, there, there was no there was no sense to it without a doubt it did did people actually mention it to you when you would go talk to a team so there was a couple that did yeah. really mm-hmm. what would they say we heard that you had a some you have a vision problem I said, well, I'll take any any eye test you want to want to take if that's the case. But, but the but the perception was potentially there. How difficult was it to pick up the pieces after that? What what kept you going? Well, I, I, I met a fella by the name of Gary Bechtel. Okay. Uh, through Felix. Yeah. And uh, Gary was was a neighbor of Felix's. And and I think I think maybe Felix made the context that Gary's thinking about running some races. Would you be interested talking to him? I said absolutely. So I went and met with Gary, and he decided to uh, to run um, run a few races toward the end of the year. And so that kind of kept in me in ninety nineteen ninety. Okay, mm-hmm. ran a few races, 
And uh, another situation, just like Lou and Jenny Mantle, became tremendous friends. You know, our racing relationship didn't last that long, but uh, but just just his him and his family, such quality people, just love them to death. Actually, went to a went to a dinner with with Gary last year at 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 Richard Childress's Vineyard. So, uh, but that that got me going, and uh, and then decided in in '91. You know, Marsha and I did some soul searching. Said, hey, I don't. I don't see it happening in the Cup Series. I mean, I mean, I've talked to people, and I would go to the racetrack and feel like a duck out of water, try to you know try to talk to people about ride. Why don't? What do you think about you know getting a bush car? You know, going kind of going back to our roots a little bit, and we'll race it when we can afford to race it. And uh, so that's what we decided to do. We bought a car from uh, from Don Beverly, who who had I'd actually. John, Don Beverly and John Dotson started a team in '89, uh, and I and we got sponsorship from Skoll and Crown Petroleum at the time was my sponsor in the Cup Series. They did, we did like ten or eleven races in 1989. Finished second three times out of those ten or eleven races. I bought one of those cars that from them that I had run, and we got uh, we got ready. We got it ready over the winter, by, basically by myself, and to, said we'll we'll run whatever races we can run whenever. We can afford to run them if we can find sponsors for whatever the case may be. But at that time, there was very, there was, you know, had really nothing going in the Cup Series whatsoever. So, May of nineteen ninety four, you go to Charlotte and you win. Yeah, and this and this is that same. This is this is the basically that same team that we started for the ninety one season. Ran five races that year, seven the next year, and that team built up. Yeah. to the point where we go to Charlotte in ninety four. And this is the absolutely crazy thing about that race weekend. There were 23 cars that failed to qualify. So you're talking, what, 66 cars mm-hmm. there that weekend. <laughs> That's how it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember about that weekend? Well, we went to test. We went over the test, and we spent about a half a day, and the, and the car was really, really good. And and it's kind of a uh, – a bit of a throwback. Remember, way back when I when I was first getting started, I told you about Tex and, and Mike really teaching me how to work on a race car. Well, Mike was part of my crew there in the 1994, and uh, along with just a, just a lot of friends, and uh, uh, we had I had one full time person helping me, Mark Connolly, and but Mike and his guys would come from uh, and pit the car and work actually work, not only pit the car but work with us during the during the race weekend or whatever. So. Uh, Ted Condor, the late Ted Condor's good friend of mine, he was he was a spotter and he helped us and and uh, when we tested, I knew we had a good car and then we qualified. I don't know somewhere around tenth, twelfth, something like that, and I knew it was fast. And it was from the time they dropped the green flag, the car was fast. But again, there was a lot of competition. I mean, all the because there were sixty some cars. I mean, 15, 20 of them had, had cup drivers in them. Not necessarily cup teams running them, but yeah. cup drivers. I mean, Dale Sr. And, yeah. and, and, and Michael and Mark Martin and Farouche or whatever. So, But the thing was just fast and finally got the lead uh, in the second half of the race. Made, made a pit stop. We had a lug nut get jammed in the, in the lug wrench and, and lost the lead. I said, don't worry about it. We'll get it back. Car's good enough. We'll get it back. So we... Uh, we finally finally chased Mark down and caught him and passed him and, and drove away. 
drove away from Mark Martin yeah. in the Bush series, in the Bush race. series yeah. <laughs> yeah. You almost said that with a straight face. Well, yeah. <laughs> I remember when, uh, you know, early on, go- going back early on, we uh, I finished like fourth at Darlington, which was really disappointing because Mark finished third. And usually, if, you know, I mean, yeah. if, 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 you, yeah. if you finish behind Mark, you should have been second, but Mark didn't win that day. But anyway, yeah, that was a... That was uh, that was huge. I mean, that was huge. And, and and we talked about how big it was to win at Bristol, and how big it was to win the, at Talladega. But after what I'd been through, probably the previous five years, I'm not sure that 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 win at Charlotte wasn't wasn't the, the most special of my career, honestly. Once he got around him, it, it was just forget about it. He has checked out right now. Phil has a half lap lead over Mark Martin. And when you do that in the Grand National race here at Charlotte, you've done something. Phil will now dispatch of the lap car of Tim Fedewa. When he comes by, it'll be two to go. Do you think right now that the people that are on Hoosiers tomorrow are pretty happy? I think that they uh, probably like How about the chances. ones today? <laughs> <laughs> I think that right now they're probably thinking about it just a little bit. Let's follow Phil here as he finishes this thing up. There's really no battle going on for position anywhere on the racetrack, but Phil Parsons is hanging on, trying to pick up what would be the second biggest win in his career as he takes it out of three. Phil Parsons drives up high this time, about two lanes higher. It looks like he's let off the throttle just a little bit as he comes through four. Phil Parsons will glide that car across the start-finish line. He takes a look at the white flag, eases around Tim Fedewa, and climbs the banking in one. As he goes into turn one, Mark Martin is coming out of turn four. Phil Parsons, about halfway down the backstretch, he could just take his leg out of it and coast on in, so he just has to negotiate about half of the track one more time. He's back in turn three. Phil Parsons has open track. He goes into the turn very, very easy. He even lets a couple of lap cars like Tim Fidewa and Bobby Dotter catch up with him. Bill Parsons off of turn four for the final time. And in front of the main grandstands here at Charlotte Motor Speedway, Phil Parsons takes a look at the checkered flag and will win the Champion Spark Plug 300. Well, everybody's there. It was Charlotte. Yeah. I don't know that you could have wanted a better track at that time. So Yeah. 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 And, 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 and again, just, I mean, I mean, and, and, with, and we did it our – we did it ourselves. I mean, it was our team, Marsha and I's team, and we just just with a bunch of friends again, one full time employee, you know, and and just a bunch of people that that just you know just wanted just wanted to help and wanted to be there and just just friends, you know. A good strong run here. I overheard your conversation just a few moments ago, saying this win is actually bigger than the one you had at Talladega, Alabama, and this may be your opportunity to get back across the fence into the Winston Cup garage area. Well, who knows, Bill? Well, you know, all you can do is all you can do. Uh, you know, when I won Talladega, my career was on an upswing. You know, and uh, it pretty much peaked that year. We went downhill since then. We've had some trouble, but uh, you know, as I told TV, the the good Lord, you know, has a place for us. Every, you know, all the time and. You know, after I got shoveled out of the Winston Cup circuit, I said, Lord, you know, my wife and I said, you know, what do you want us to be? And, and they, and, you know, I think, I think they said, get a bush car and show what you can do. Uh, so it's, it's, it's our own car. We've got a great bunch of guys back here that help. They all do it. I've got one full-time employee. The rest of them do it for nothing because they're friends of mine. I can't thank them enough. Most of them have been with me since I started this team in 1991. So uh, this one's for them as much. And this is for Bob Newton, too. It's for Bob Newton. <laughs> and Bob Newton has joined you in victory lane. Bob, uh, I know you want to congratulate your drivers very quickly here. But, Phil, you got to you got to say one thing about this. You've been close before. You've had a competitive car here at Charlotte Motor Speedway. But to hear today you were able to capitalize on it, what was the difference in today's run because you did it under a green flag racing condition? Well, we had a little luck today. 
excuse me, Rockingham, we had the best car. We started way back. We got to sixth from 30th, and the, mo the motor blew up, you know, before we could pass the leaders and go on. We've had an excellent car here. Last fall, we had a car good enough to win the race, and the ignition coil went bad. So we've had the car. We've had the car ever since I had this team, and uh, you know, today we had a little luck. I want to thank the Bechtels, too. They own Steve Grisman's car. If it wasn't for them, with their help, we started this Bush team. They sponsored me two or three races. When I didn't have a sponsor, that got us off the ground. Got, we were able to buy the car, and we built on it from there. Congratulations, Phil Parsons, the winner here of the Champion Spark Plug 300. Thank you. From there on out, the Bush Series was your home. Mm -hmm. Was that something that you were satisfied with, or were you looking for an opportunity in Cup? I, I think probably at that point I'm still looking for an opportunity. And, and um, that, that weekend when we won the Bush Race at Charlotte in 94, that was the weekend that John Andretti did the double. And I actually had practiced John's cup car. He was driving for Billy Hagan. Okay. Yeah. So I had practiced yeah. the cup car. And if John didn't make it back from, uh, from Indy, then I would have driven that car in, in the race that year. Uh, so I was still looking for cup opportunities. And, and I actually got, I, I ran a, a few races for, for Harry Melling yeah. uh, later that year. Uh, and uh, so, I, I mean, at that point, I was still looking for cup opportunities. The year 2000 was your last in, mm -hmm. in the seat full-time. I mm -hmm. think you did one. Did one race in 2001. In, in 2001. Yeah. Driving for Tad and Jody. Did you just simply make the decision to walk away from the sport, or was that maybe something where you just couldn't well, find a ride? Or Well, no. Nah, ESPN had been, had been okay. talking to me All about right. doing TV, and we didn't have a very good year in 2000, and I hated that for Tad and Jody. Uh, I didn't. I didn't think our leadership there on, on the car side was was somebody that could could make a difference, and I I, I didn't I, I made the choice not to go to Tad and say I think we need to you know get rid of some people and get some new people in here. I decided well maybe it's time for me to do something different, and I went ahead and started talked to ESPN and went ahead and started doing TV the next year. Of course, the year two thousand uh, was very difficult for a lot of reasons. We've lost mm -hmm. Adam and we lost Kenny and we lost Tony. And there was such a controversy about safety. Did that play anything at all Not into at all. your decision? Not at all. Okay. All yeah. Right. I, and I, I honestly I, I never I never got in a race car. I raced for maybe twenty two years. I never got in a race car and worried about my safety. Never once. Even, you know, people talk about we talked earlier about the the wreck I had at Talladega. I couldn't wait to get back to Talladega the next time I went back. To, <laughs> couldn't wait because I knew I would have a yeah. good shot. I mean, it never, yeah. never, never thought about it again. Never, never, never crossed my mind. Never, never thought about safety one time ever getting in a race car. What was your transition to the booth like? Did you have any kind of withdrawal pains from not being in the seat? I, I really didn't intend. I, I hadn't intended on retiring. Uh, I, I would you know, was looking for money at the time to try to do, do some races. And, and Gene Need was over running the operation for Kerbagajanian, and the opportunity was there. If we could have got, found some money to, to run a second car for them, they had Jay Sauter was in the primary car. And we never really, I never really could find anything to get it going. They actually found a sponsor, and, and I ran Kentucky, which was my last official race, uh, for Gene and, and, and Mike Kerb and, and Kerry Agajanian. And, uh, but we never really found, found any more money. And I, and I probably, even for a couple years after that, I probably I would have got back on the seat. I wasn't going to forsake doing TV, 
but I would have loved to have done some, some, some more racing, but the opportunity just never came about. Did you feel split? Talking to race car drivers, it, it's, a, it's, it's pretty addictive. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, it's, it's hard to tear themselves away. Did you felt torn away from the car? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I missed it. I, I missed it for, I don't know about torn, but I, but I missed it for a lot of years. Yeah. I mean, I, I missed it bad for a lot, you know, for several years. Now we're 20 years down the road. Now, I, I mean, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't think about getting back in a car. I mean, I would get back in a car and play. And I ran a couple of those things they had at Bristol, you know, over the years. I, I guess it's probably been 10 years or something since I had the last one. Uh, and that, and that was a lot of fun. And I, and, and it would be something that I would certainly do f- for something like that, but I, you know, I, I, leave it to the young kids. And I, I, I tell my son, Stefan all the time, I, you know, he, cause we've gone testing with his late model back when he had a late model. And so why don't you get in around the thing? I said, I don't want to make you look bad. I mean, now, you know, you're, you're young, your ego's fragile. I don't want to get in here and run faster than you and make you look bad. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, "Oh yeah, right." But anyway, so that's. Uh, but it, but I did miss it for a long time, and miss miss. It's all I ever wanted to do. I didn't. I didn't grow up wanting to do do TV. I grew up wanting to be a race car driver, and uh, and I was you know pretty fortunate that I got to do it for over twenty years of my life. And now I've been pretty fortunate on this side that uh, that I've had a second career. This is this this ended my twentieth year doing TV full time. You've got three kids, mm-hmm. uh, Kinsley, who was with you and Marsha on the cover of the Grand National scene when you won Talladega. Mm-hmm. And then you have twins, mm-hmm. Stefan and Cammie. And so we are kindred spirits there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Cammie has cheered for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Stefan is following in your footsteps as a racer. Trying to, yeah. And I, we were kind of talking before we started recording – did you sit down with Stefan at some point and say, now, you know what, this, this is a really tough gig, and the money's more than likely going to be hard to come by. Are you sure you want to do this? Yeah. Well, I, 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 uh, that probably came along later because uh, Ken Reagan is a good friend of mine. I raced with Ken back in the day, and he was running the uh, Legends and Bandolero operation for, for – Humpy and Bruton at, at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and and you know at eight at eight years old you can run a Bandolero car, and so for a couple of years Ken said, hey, if you ever want to put Stefan in a Bandolero, you know, let me know and I'll set up a, a, a test or whatever. So we kind of put it off, put it off, put it off, and and Stefan was was going to turn uh, was going to turn twelve, and Marcia said, what do you think about he's he's going to be twelve now? What do you think about calling Ken and see if you can. You set up a deal for Stefan to run a test a bando car. So, done. And it, it wasn't that I, that I was waiting for her to say that. I mean, you know, we we just never really thought about it because you know we just we just didn't. I just certainly I know how hard the business is, and I didn't want to push you know. But but it wasn't you know he kept asking about it, and I kept asking about it. And so finally we relented. He was about to turn twelve years old, almost as a birthday present. So I called. I called Ken, you know, right away, and shoot, I, I think we said that we had that session s- scheduled for that day. I mean, it literally took one day for Ken to set something up, and so we went down to Charlotte on the quarter mile, and Stefan went out there and won a won a uh, six hundred racing's cars, and Ken said, "Looks like he's got the speed. He's not afraid to go fast and whatever." And so uh, there was a guy that had a couple cars, and I ended up borrowing one of them. So 
So there was a beginner bandit class. So Stefan went out there and was, was pretty competent and ended up rent, winning a race in, in, in his first year during the summer shootout. Uh, you got to win a race or whatever. And I think we didn't run all the races in the summer shootout because I don't even think we started till after that it already began. So ended up winning a race. And uh, so then we decided to buy our own car. Uh, we actually, actually, Daryl, we at Michael and Daryl's golf tournament in Nashville that we used to go to every every year. Uh, they had a an auction item was a bandol, a brand new Bandolero that 600 Racing put up and gave to as an auction item. So I bid on that. Well, Daryl outbid me on the thing. I said, Daryl, what are you going to do with that Bandolero? He said. Well, we'll run it up and down the driveway or whatever. <laughs> I said, well, I want to I want a bike. My son has started running. I'm going to run. He said, no problem. So so basically, Daryl let me buy the car. And uh, so I got ready to start that year, a little bit more of an ambitious schedule. And I said, I've, I've got two rules, Stefan. I said, rule number one, if we're going to do this, I know how hard it is. I did it my whole life. We're going to have fun. You know, there'll be plenty of time down the road not to have fun, but for right now, if we're going to do this, we're going to have fun, and and all I ask is you to do your best. So that was that was our premise, and those were the two only uh, only rules I had, and so we did that for a couple of years, and then we moved on to legend cars, and did that for a couple of years, and then on the late models, and did that for a couple of years, and and obviously getting more serious as time went on and then he got he got the opportunity with uh with BJ McLeod last year to get in some Xfinity races and we know we know the challenges of of racing today and how how financially difficult it is and but we were able to put together enough stuff and BJ was really good to Stefan and at the end of last year I said Stefan I said you may never get to run anymore cuz we may not have an opportunity to raise any money but you were able to race at some pretty cool places. He raced at Daytona. He raced at Darlington. He raced at uh, Las Vegas. He, you know, he raced. Uh, I said you raced at some pretty cool places. So, uh, but he, you know, he didn't want to quit there. And and fortunately, with again with BJ this year, he got to run. You know, got to run eight or ten more Xfinity races. And we're looking, you know, looking to do some more next year. And we've. Got got a little bit of support from some people. Mark SoCal has been so for, you know so giving and helpful, and and uh, James Finch has, has helped Stefan since he ran Bandoleros because he's known Stefan since he was born. But James has always come through and always helped Stefan to you know said you need, get that boy some tires. He needs some tires. He's gonna if he's gonna run that race at Darlington, he needs some tires. You know so so James has always always been there. So uh, and and BJ just. I think thanks the world to Stefan, and conversely, Stefan thanks the world to BJ as, as I do, and his wife Jessica. So it's been a good situation. It's a great opportunity for him to learn, get some laps, and who who knows where it can go. But the thing I'm most proud about Stefan and Cami is they both did so well in college. Uh, they both graduated with honors. Stefan from UNCC in marketing, and Cami with exercise and sports science at Chapel Hill. Uh, so I'm I'm really proud of him for doing that. And, and Stefan did this mind you, while he was trying to race and trying to work on race cars and go help people and as far as work on race cars, Cammy while she was cheering, which is which was a full time job at Carolina with, with practice and training and stuff like that. So they've uh, they've done really well. As well as Kinsley. Now we talk about the relationships that I've had with with the Bannels and US Tobacco and the relationship with Gary Bechtel and Tad and Jody. Well Kinsley works for Tad and Jody right now at JTG. So does she really? Yeah, she sure okay. does. Yeah, all right, cool. So, yeah, so I'm proud of all my kids. Cammy went to 
Chapel Hill, mm-hmm. and Stefan went to UNC Charlotte. As the father of twins who may or may not be about to head to separate schools <laughs> for the first time in their lives, how difficult a transition was that for Cammie and Stefan and maybe Phil and Marsha? It was, it, was, <laughs> it was easy for Cammie and Stefan. Okay. Really easy. Okay. Yeah, because they fought most of their lives, honestly. <laughs> it, it just, just at the end of high school, yeah. you know, they end up having, this, you know, having the same group of friends, and I think they got closer at the end of high school than they had ever been in their lives. And, uh, and then, but I, I don't, I don't, it was never an issue, but I think they talked more once they went away to separate schools or whatever than, than they had before. And, uh, and once they graduated, now right, for right now they're both home, and they're actually looking, possibly looking for a place, a condo or a townhome to buy together. So uh, it's amazing the transformation because, I, I mean, they literally fought probably till they were 15 or 16 years old. And most of it instigated by Stefan, I must say. So, yeah. so what I hear you saying is, Rick, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. <laughs> you and your wife will be fine. <laughs> Steve, in 1987, Phil Parsons finished fourth at Martinsville in the spring, his only top five finish of the year. He gets seven top tens in all, and he finishes 14th in points. The following year, however, Phil scored six top fives, 15 top tens, finished ninth in points, and most importantly of all, he wins the very first race of his Winston Cup career at Talladega. Now, I don't know that we can tell from the outside looking in, but what made the difference in those years? Well, you had a team with another year of growth together, both driver, crew chief, and team. And in that way, I think they did manage to get better. But there's also another aspect of all of this, Rick. Racing is all about change. And that means a change in the rules, a change in the makeup of the cars, Maybe some personnel changes, but it's always, always change. Perfect example is a team goes out and wins some races in a Chevrolet one year, and next year, that Chevrolet can't get out of its own way. And that has a lot to do with the rotation and how teams have to adapt to those changes. So I think that the stability of this team for its first two years was a great factor in its improvement. It wasn't really thrown any curveballs to get out of the way. In 1987, Benny drove several races for Hendrick Motorsports while Tim Richmond was out of the car. That opened up the Skull car for Bill to basically run the whole schedule. Then, as you mentioned, Oldsmobile came out with a new Cutlass body. And in 1988, Bill was ready to rock and roll. The finish of the 1988 Daytona 500 between Bobby and Davey Allison was so iconic. But, Steve, I did not remember that Phil actually finished third in that race, maybe a car length or so behind Davey. I could tell you, I forgot that as well. I really did. Here's how strong Phil was at Talladega that spring, and I love this story. Yes. One of the crew guys drove the car to the gas pumps. He was just going to get some gas, and that was going to be it. But, but several other teams saw him headed out of the garage or whatever, and they lined up behind him <laughs> <laughs> thinking he was going to go out to the track and they wanted to draft with him. That's when how good ha- that Phil's car was. When you have a very fast car, a place like Daytona and Talladega, yes, sir, Bob, <laughs> other guys want to draft with you. You've got the key. Phil won the race 
And yes, I did ask him about what Andy Petrie told us way back in episode 68 about how that car was so innovative and still, and Phil still wouldn't give up anything about what exactly was special about that car. (laughs) I talked about change earlier. Sounds like these boys made some changes of their own. (laughs) (laughs) As good a year as Phil had in 1988, things kind of fell off the cliff the following year in 1989. How Needham had gotten out of the sport at the end of 1988. So Skull took Harry Gant's sponsorship to Leo Jackson while Phil stayed put with Richard. And it just wasn't a good year in 1989. They were kind of headed in their own separate directions. And he got the deal with Morgan McClure, and that was that. As happy as he had been to win Talladega, uh, losing the ride in the four car was pretty much exactly the opposite. He went from the mountaintop to the valley. Absolutely. Winning a race to losing a ride in a matter of three races, it, the fall doesn't get much steeper than that. We discussed this back when we had Larry McClure on the show, but there were all these rumors about his eyesight. And he, again, he said in no uncertain terms that it damaged his career. And it was at that point where he and his wife, Marsha, basically decided to go back to the roots and run their own Bush series car. And I guess in a sense to be masters of their own destiny, if he's got his own car, he's the boss and he can do with it what he wants. Along with that comes a lot of responsibility, sponsorship, and all that. But he was going to be in charge of his own destiny. Well, I mentioned the expense as well. But Phil, when he had that crash at Richmond, that's when he lost his ride. I remember him standing next to Larry McClure in the garage area at Richmond. And three times, Phil looked at Larry and said, What happened? What happened? Phil had no idea what happened to him in that wreck, and Larry told him to go to the medical center. Now, just like that, and the next, the next day it was gone. And this business about his eyesight crept up. I heard that rumor, and I went to Phil, and I said, tell me about this. And Phil told me the whole story, that no, he had no vision problems. He didn't know where it got started. And then that's the story I printed about him, and that sort of didn't sit well with Larry McClure for some reason. He did. He thought I was on the side of Phil Parsons and against Larry's hiring of Ernie Irvin. I really wasn't, but Larry had the first and last laugh because the very next race with Ernie Irvin board, Ernie finished third. <laughs> and Larry more or less thought he put me in my place with that one. Phil basically finished out his career in the Bush Series before turning his attention to television. And now, Steve, his son, Stefan, is continuing his racing career and will probably run some more Xfinity stuff for team owner BJ McLeod. But best of all, Stefan has a twin sister, Cammie, who graduated from Carolina while Stefan went to UNC Charlotte. They went to separate schools, Steve. Phil and I actually talked about this, but I'm not sure what the future might hold for Adam and Jesse, our twins. But Phil assured me that things would be okay. So I'm going to take him at his word if Adam and Jesse do wind up headed to separate schools. Well, Phil's been through the experience. He knows what he's talking about, so I'd listen. Listeners, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter, at Speedway Screens. 
and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And Steve, this was another incredible week on Brian's Etsy page on his Twitter feed. He posted some incredible stuff. And listeners, the bottom line is this. You owe it to yourself. If you care anything at all about NASCAR history, if you have any kind of interest in vintage racing material, go over to Brian's Etsy store and check it out. Yeah, you will not regret it. So again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the June 2nd, 1994 issue of Winston Cup scene carried coverage of Jeff Gordon's very first official points-paying victory in the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte. This kid, Jeff Gordon, won this race, and then he basically faded away and was never heard from again. He was a one-hit wonder, if ever there was one. Uh, Maybe you ought to rethink that one, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff who? (laughs) (laughs) On lap 375, race leader Rusty Wallace stopped for four tires and fuel. Then came Ernie Irvin, then came Del Jarrett, then came Jeff Bodine. They all pitted, and they all took on four fresh field goods. Which normally you would expect them to do. Everybody was playing the same tune, evidently, except for Ray Evernham. Ray did not bring Jeff in until lap 381, and then when he did roll down pit road, the Rainbow Warriors put on just two tires. And when Jeff rolled down pit road, that gave Ricky Rudd the lead, but then he pitted on lap 391 with the lead going to Jeff. And even though Jeff was on just two tires, he set sail and he basically cruised away from Rusty to collect that magical first win. Wow, Ray had a handle on that one, didn't he? He certainly did. Now, Jeff was on NASCAR's weekly call with the media back in 2014, the 20th anniversary (laughs) It's hard for me to get my arms around the fact that the 20th anniversary of Jeff Gordon's first Winston Cup win was six years ago. <laughs> Don't even mention time passing. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and during that phone call with the media, he talked about that night. You know, remember that I started on the front row and that we had a good car. Uh, we led uh, quite a few laps, but that Rusty was the car to beat. And, and then we made, you know, Ray made that great call. But I, even watching me come down pit road for that final pit stop, uh, you know, just kind of made me chuckle because they didn't measure pit road speed the same way that they do now. And and so it looked like I was speeding, uh, but they didn't really have a way to, to measure it other than by uh, a stopwatch. So I was the only car on pit road, so maybe I wasn't. But that's just the way it looked in the video. And just I'd love to go back and, and relive. Uh, that race because there are a lot of things that I, I don't remember. Jeff won both 1992 Bush Series races at Charlotte from the pole. Then he took the first pole of his Winston Cup career at Charlotte in the fall of 1993. He went to Victory Lane in the 1994 Winston Select Open the week before the 600. And then he won the 600 from the pole. He had just a little bit of confidence going into this race. <laughs> I would say so. My first pole came at Charlotte uh, in October of 93. I won, you know, two nationwide races in 92. 
tra- uh, that track was always something uh, it, from the first time I made laps around that track. It was something that uh, I enjoyed doing. Uh, it was a fun, fast racetrack, and I feel like it's always been one of my better tracks. So, yeah, it, it uh, I definitely had uh, confidence from from previous history heading into that ninety four. 600 that uh and the car was great that weekend it gave me uh good confidence to 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 know that we had a shot at winning steve we talked to ray Everham all the way back in episode 46 of the podcast about his decision to have jeff take only two tires that final pit stop we practiced it we knew you know at that time we were some things leading up there was a little bit of a difference in the radial tire um you know the 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 fall off wasn't as bad some of the two tire stuff had been working and we practiced one of the things we used to do is try at one point because we used to get some practice i mean we used to it's not like today you just you got to go do this and that's boom your practice over we you know we'd have we'd roll in on wednesday and we'd do nothing but (laughs) practice till saturday so every place that we went we tried to put on two tires and run 15, 20 laps, just so we knew what the drop-off was. So we did it at Charlotte. We had the time, and we, we knew, you know, X amount of tenths per second per lap we were giving up, and if it came down to it and we got in position, I said, man, if, you know, if this caution comes out or, or doesn't come out, if we got a pit with, with 20 to go, I think put two tires on this thing. And it was really just a, a matter of math. So sure enough, you know, we're, we're getting close to the end there, and everybody's got a pit again. Rusty's leading. He fires down pit road, four tires, about 16 seconds, and, and takes off. Bodine's running second with a seven car. And comes down pit road and misses his pit or spins or something, but but he's out now, right? So I'm waiting it out, you know. So, so we're counting it down, and I remember Mr. Hendrick was was standing there, and people were going, "When are you going to pit?" I said, "Just just just I'm going to watch this cycle here." And I watched everybody start pitting, start pitting, four tires, four tires, and we got inside about 18 laps, and I knew that we were going to be about two tenths of a second slower than Rusty on four, but if we did two. We could get out of the pits in about nine seconds. So that's going to give us a seven-second deal. Okay, so we were three seconds behind him. We should come out four seconds ahead of him. And he is not going to be able to catch us in 15 laps. So we, you know, I remember saying to the guys, look at me, look at me, because I didn't want to say it on the radio. And I just started holding up two, 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 two. And when Jeff hit pit road, I said, be ready. We're doing two tires, two tires, two tires. And Mr. Hendrick, I remember him going, are you sure? We can afford four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't get, try and get me to change my mind. So I said, yeah, we got this. We got it. We got it. Well, if I may be so bold, I think that what happened in that race between Ray and Jeff was a sign of things to come. Ray proved right then and there that he was not going to be the ordinary crew chief doing the ordinary thing during the course of a race. He was willing to gamble or take a chance that would put his man out front so he could win the race. And he did that during his entire tenure with Jeff. And it suited Jeff just fine. And Steve, I think a lot of people who were watching that night considered that a gamble. But according to Ray, he had the data. They had practiced it. They had practiced two tires. He knew how the car would react. He absolutely did. But when you think about it, too, it still was a chance. Because even with the data, it was outside of the normal procedure. Rusty wound up finishing second, but he wasn't very happy after the race. Rusty said it was a chancy move to put just two tires on. We really had him beat today. It was almost disgusting how bad we had him beat. I never thought he'd try two tires, and I never thought it would work. Looking back, hindsight, we should have changed two, and we would have won 
by a ton. Now, what did I say about taking a chance? Listen to Rusty. He couldn't believe they did it. <laughs> John Andretti began that day with a 10th place finish at Indy. He was two laps down to race winner Al Unser Jr. He flew back to Salisbury, North Carolina, where he boarded a helicopter that brought him down into the infield at Charlotte. And Steve, he arrived just 11 minutes before the green flag. And when he landed in the infield, a four-wheeler took him from the helicopter to his Hagen Racing Chevrolet. Only way he could make it. John wound up spinning in turn four on lap 90. He came back into the race after repairs, but then eventually fell out with a broken crankshaft. In all, he completed 220 of the race's 400 laps, just a little more than half the event. He was credited with a 36th place finish. And Steve, he said in a sidebar, all in all, I've got no regrets. I would just like to have finished this race. There was not one point in the race where I felt like I couldn't run as good as if I hadn't been in the 500. I just drove this car yesterday, so it wasn't a big deal getting used to it again. And Steve, this is something that I hadn't known. Phil Parsons actually practiced John's car, and if John hadn't been able to make it back in time for the 600, Phil was going to drive it. Well, there were a lot of people concerned about John making it back for the 600. Uh, They didn't think he would. But as we learned, he got there at the track 11 minutes before and then was driven straight to his car. I want to say this. For a competitor to take on the task of driving an Indy race and the short race in the same day, and it's been done more than once, means that person is a real competitor. And John Andretti was definitely a race driver, and it's sad that he's gone. Ernie Irvin finished fifth in the 600 and padded his lead in the Winston Cup standings over Dale Earnhardt from 40 to 62 points. And, Steve, I think the fact that Ernie was out front in the Winston Cup standings, that championship battle was going to come down to Ernie and Dale that year, which makes the fact of Ernie's crash at Michigan so much more significant. We've talked about Ernie's crash before, but when you look at a – Winston Cup scene from earlier in the season and how well he was doing. Yeah, that was going to be a toss-up over who was going to win that championship. I think at that particular time, all the doubts about Ernie Irvin, and we've heard him in the the past, were totally erased. Totally erased. He gained a new respect. During a round of yellow flag pit stops with 80 laps to go in the race, Jeff Clark, Ernie's jackman, had his foot run over by Wally Dollenbach and Mike Smith, the Jack man for Wood Brothers Racing and driver Morgan Shepard, filled in for Jeff the rest of the night. Now, fortunately for Jeff, it apparently wasn't that serious an injury because he was seen and released from the infield care center. But Steve, that just the fact that he his foot was run over during I a know, pit stop. That's, that's, that's crazy. I have seen an accident in the garage area when a slow-moving car ran over a pedestrian's foot in the garage area slow moving not at race speed not even at 25 miles an hour and it broke that pedestrian's foot severely so jeff to me was very lucky here absolutely now steve here is a standalone quote that was in the scene on the circuit section about this race and it was from steve grissom Dell Earnhardt and Kyle Petty had tried to race Rusty Wallace back to a yellow flag to get their laps back during the 600 with Steve's wrecked race car sitting right there on the front stretch in the way. 
That is a scary situation. That was a very, very scary situation. And this is what Steve said. I didn't see those two cars trying to make up their laps because I had my eyes closed, but I heard them. And that was scary enough. <laughs> yeah. That scenario is one reason racing back to the caution is no longer allowed. You know, a lot of people don't like the lucky dog. A lot of people would rather see it go back to the way it was. Not me. Uh-uh. No, uh-uh. no, 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 no. There were way too many incidents where cars were sitting basically helpless on the racetrack. You heard about drivers who had already unbuckled. thinking yeah. that The way was clear. And here comes a couple of cars trying to race the leader back to the caution. And Steve, that could have been so, 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 so bad. Absolutely. Hey, I'll tell you what. Ask Steve Grissom if he would like to have that rule changed. Ask Steve Grissom. Ask Del Jarrett. Yeah. There there were a lot of people that could answer that question. So Steve, another item that was very cool in the pit pass section. We talked last year about the 1994 Winston Select Open and how Dave Marcus's car had been wiped out in an accident and how bad he hated the open and all that kind of thing. And he didn't want to run it no more. Well, there was a pit pass item in this issue that said that Richard Childress offered Dave the use of one of Dale Earnhardt's cars for the 600. The Winston select open was on May 21st. And at six 30, the next morning, Dave left his home in Avery's Creek, North Carolina to go pick up the car from RCR. Here's a custom diecast car. If anybody wants to try to track one down, the car that Dave drove at Charlotte remained Dell Earnhardt's familiar black, but it carried Dave Marcus's number 71 with his Olive Garden sponsorship. Well, if that's a diecast anywhere out there, go get it. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, again, here's another little detail that I didn't know. Felix Sabatis had also offered to prepare a Pontiac for Dave if he needed it. And unfortunately, Dave failed to qualify for the 600. So he didn't get to run this Dale Earnhardt slash number 71 slash Olive Garden Chevrolet. But the fact that Richard Schillers and Felix Sabatis were willing to do that for Dale indicates how teams help individuals and how individuals help teams in NASCAR. Steve, in the champion spark plug 300 Bush Series race at Charlotte the day before the 600, Phil passed Mark Martin with 17 laps to go and then proceeded to smoke Mark (laughs) and everyone else the rest of the way. (laughs) And Steve, he won that race by 10.84 seconds. Let me tell you something. Anytime you smoke Mark Martin in a Bush Series race, you've done something. And Steve, we talked last week about Phil winning his first race in what is now the Xfinity series when he passed David Pearson Yeah, at Bristol in 1982. So he passed Mark Martin to win at Charlotte and he passed David Pearson to win at Bristol. That's two that's, pretty nice little lines on his resume. That's knocking off two studs right there. <laughs> <laughs> Phil talked about in victory lane that day. And then when I talked to him two or three weeks ago before Christmas, he talked about the fact that he considered this Bush Series win even a bigger mark in his career, a bigger moment in his career than he did Talladega because of everything that he had been through. Plus the fact he won in his own car, not driving for anybody else. It was his own deal. And I think a lot of drivers feel like any time, they can win in their own car is quite an accomplishment, especially 
when you beat a lot of solid, solid teams out there. To win at Charlotte in a car that he owned, just like he had started out in Dash and then late model sportsman, that was a very special day for Phil for a lot of different reasons. Now, it was not a special day for Chad Little, who spent the night in the hospital after a 15-car wreck on the front stretch, left him with a concussion and fractures of his right shoulder and leg. Phil was leading comfortably on lap 158 when Mike McLaughlin spun in turn four. That brought out the event's sixth and final caution. Phil came in the pits as the leader, but he came out fifth after a lug nut jammed in an air gun. But he went back on the racetrack, and he proceeded to chase down Mark Martin, proceeded to pass him, and then whoop him the rest <laughs> of the day. <laughs> <laughs> that took some doing, but Phil did it. This was a race, apparently, that was good for the little guy. Phil won. Roy Payne finished fourth. And three drivers who made the field through the last chance hooligan race wound up in the top ten. Now, Steve, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Bush Series hooligan race at Charlotte, what was that race? That was actually a qualifying-type race. It was held among all the cars that had not yet qualified for the race. They left, offered them a chance to get a couple of them in there. At least one or two could get in. And the hooligan race was a lot of fun to watch, although a bit scary, because these guys were going for everything they could to try to get into that race. They were going to take some chances out there they normally wouldn't take. But as you just pointed out, a lot of them had mighty good paydays by making that race. As you mentioned, that was a fun race to watch, but I also watched that race holding my breath. Yeah, I can because, understand that. Yeah, it, it opened up some scenarios that were sometimes not too pretty. But in this race, Ernie Irvin, he wasn't a little guy, of course. He had won the Daytona 500 and was the points leader in the Winston Cup Championship at that point. Ernie Irvin started the hooligan race 34th, and he finished 5th in this event. Ronald Cooper started 40th. He finished 7th, and Joe Bessie started 42nd and finished 10th. Now, right there is the value of making that race. Those guys pocketed a lot of money for the type of operations they had. Steve, if you were anywhere near the Bush Series in the early 1990s, you knew who Big Rodney Middlebrook was, even if you didn't know him personally. I saw him. <laughs> he <laughs> tended to stand out on pit road. <laughs> Rodney was a big dude. According to a standalone photo in this issue, he was 6'3 and weighed 350 pounds, but he still went over the wall and changed tires for Johnny Benson and base motorsports. Rodney was the man. Yeah, be that big and jump the wall. Wow. <laughs> Steve, this apparently was his last race. He got married the night before the race, and after losing friends Neil Bonnet and Rodney Orr at Daytona earlier that year, he decided that it was time to call it quits. He said, in the caption in this photo, it made me think that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. It's time to do some things before there is no time. Especially when you are a newlywed. Steve, there was a story in this issue about Bud Moore's service on D-Day and throughout the rest of World War II in honor of the 50th anniversary of D-Day coming up on June 6th. 1994, a couple of days after this issue hit newsstands and mailboxes. Steve, I know that you and Pappy, your buddy Tom Higgins, had teamed up for another piece and scene, I think maybe for the 40th anniversary a few years before. Yeah. 
Yeah, we did. Uh, every D-Day that I ever rolled around, I tell you, readers needed to read about Bud Moore's exploits. Just fantastic. It's something that he did talk about. I don't think it's something that he actively publicized or anything. It I know that he did have some demons that remained with him for several years after that, maybe for the rest of his life, I'm sure. But Steve, I don't know about you, but Bud Moore talking about fighting his way onto Utah Beach during the early morning hours of D-Day on June 6, 1944, is some of the most chilling content that we have ever produced. Now, here's a clip of Bud talking about that very thing back in one of our earliest episodes, episode seven. I was in the 90th Infantry Division in the uh, 359th Infantry Regiment, and uh, I was in D Company, 1st Battalion, and Heavy Weapons Company, they call it. We had water-cooled machine guns and 81-millimeter mortars, and this was a deal, you know, at, uh, with all the training we went through and all this, and uh, knowing all the stuff that I went through in World War II, and uh, especially, you know, uh, hitting the beach on June the 6th, 5 o'clock in the morning, one of the first waves going in, and... Our regiment was attached to the 4th Infantry Division, which made the assault, and we all went in at the same time. And uh, our other two regiments, the 357 and 358, didn't come in until D plus 6. And uh, going in there on that day, and like they got drowned that day because the Navy guy driving the landing craft, he didn't drive all the way in where we were supposed to be in knee-deep water, and we wound up was in water about over our head. And, and I got off, I had a 51-pound tripod on my back and also my backpack and all this, and I stepped in a shell hole and trying to get get out of that water and went under, and I likely got drowned. And finally, I did get out of there, and I just headed straight across the beach, got on the other side, and I sat down behind a sand dune still trying to get the water, spitting up the water and everything, get where I could breathe. And it, 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 it made this turn, you know, 19 years old and all this, and... I said, I couldn't believe what was happening with all the guys are getting hurt and people, you know, and all this of what was going on. And listeners, if you haven't had a chance to check that one out, do yourself a favor and listen to a man who once thought about something that actually mattered. Steve, in this issue, there were also additional features on Ricky Rudd's new team, as well as Bobby Hamilton driving for Felix Sabatis and crew chief Jeff Hammond, who will be our guest on the podcast the next three months. after our lengthy conversation a couple of weeks back but then steve came a story and i mentioned it in the intro about jeff purvis's flight with the blue angels that came about after the navy's flight demonstration team sent neil bonnet's family a sympathy card following his crash at daytona earlier in the year evidently neil had expressed some interest in flying with the blue angels and obviously he didn't get that chance So Jeff got the chance to fly with the Blue Angels at their home base in Pensacola, Florida. And in turn, Jeff took the Blue Angel pilots to Five Flags Speedway there in Florida, home of the annual Snowball Derby, and let them drive his Phoenix Racing Chevrolet. (laughs) Well, I guess that's only fair, right? You're going to get up (laughs) in the airplane with those guys. Might as well let them drive your cars, too. Steve, there are two things about this story that brought back a lot of memories. First of all, it brought back a memory of one of my sessions at Andy Hellenberg's Fast Track Driving School. This one took place down in Atlanta, and it actually happened at the end of 1994, the year this newspaper came out, and it took place on my way back home from interviewing Susan Bonnet at her and Neil's home in Hueytown. 
One of the other guys in the school was an F-16 fighter pilot. And Steve, my friend, I passed him on the racetrack, baby. I must have had problems. (laughs) (laughs) My dad was with me that day. And he said that after I got out of the car, I was acting like I'd won the Daytona 500 after (laughs) passing a jet fighter pilot. (laughs) I don't blame you, Rick. (laughs) And then, of course, my bucket list. Steve even more than driving the pace car. Now, you know, that's important. If I think it's a little bit higher on the bucket list than driving yeah. the pace car, I would dearly, 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 dearly love to fly with the blue angels or the Thunderbirds. So if anybody out there has any kind of connections, sign me up. <laughs> well, have fun, Rick. Cause I'm never going to do it after I eat my lunch. I don't want to see it again. If you get my drift. Ah, oh. Man, I would be disappointed if I didn't puke. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, this issue carried the first scene on the circuit item that I ever wrote for this newspaper. I was on retainer at the time and was doing a feature story on Jeremy Mayfield. And while we were talking for that story, Jeremy told me that he was going to be moving from Sadler Racing there in Nashville to drive for T.W. Taylor. And I wrote a news story, breaking that story. I was your first scoop, huh? (laughs) That was my very first scoop in Winston Cup City. (laughs) Hi, folks. This is Jeff Hammond, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. There you have it. The listeners have had a chance to hear the changes, the tweaks that we've made. I hope that they've liked them. And again, I think that the highlights and the audio from past interviews are going to take our game to the next level. Rick, I heartily agree with you. If you got the game on. Uh, not on, but okay. what's the score? 10-10. Uh, uh, Ravens top. All right. Yeah. I, it was 10-7, I think. Yeah. I yeah. 10-10 time. <laughs> <laughs>